This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Hard Anodized Sprockets, up to 66% lighter than steel sprockets. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the first off-season Paddock Pass podcast of 2023. We've uh, worked our way through 20 Grand Prix. We've uh, survived Valencia, both the, the Grand Prix and the test. In my case, I've also been to the FIM Awards, and uh, thank goodness I don't have another flight now for at least, well, a few days. So uh, we're firmly into the winter period, and I'm delighted to be joined on this show by Mr. David Emmett, who's uh, shivering away in the Netherlands uh, after having some sunshine in Valencia, which I think all three of us would agree was very welcome, and Dorna definitely dodged a bullet with the latest ever finish to a Grand Prix season. And then Neil Morrison as well. And we've got some sunshine in Barcelona, Neil, so we've got good reason to feel happy. How are we, gents? Cold. (laughs) Okay. Neil? Uh, Rested. Um, I've been sleeping without waking up during the middle of the night wondering if uh, some random young Italian rider is replacing a Moto3 full-time rider. And um, that has been... Pretty wonderful, I have to say, in the last couple of days. Uh, I mean, we are still living with the existential dread that at some point in time, uh, some motorcycle racer is going to go, I don't know, motocrossing or flat tracking and fall off and break something. So there, at any point in time, we can get a uh, another broken collarbone message, but that's just sort of par for the course, really, isn't it? Well, if you're Fabio Quattarari, you're running somewhere, you trip up and you break more bones in your foot. I mean, the off-seasons, uh, there's there's a myriad of possibilities for disaster, Dave. Yeah, I did think it was particularly cruel of him to uh, blame the cobbles in Amsterdam for, uh, for for breaking his toe rather than him tripping over something. You know, like it's, uh, I thought that was, uh, I thought that was a bit off par, but uh, um, yeah, these things, the, 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 also, well, who was, who was the other right? Was it Andrea Iannone? You also managed to fall over while he was running some time and, and smash himself in the face. Or uh, I seem to remember another Italian rider managing a, a similar feat. Well, Andrea Iannone's done some stuff to his face, but I'm not sure falling on, uh, <laughs> on it is one of them. But uh, yeah, maybe it would have worked better. But listen, on this podcast, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Valencia test because that took place right after we recorded our last show. So we're going to go through a couple of the headlines there. And Dave, we know how excited you were about that particular running. So we're going to get your thoughts. We've also got a special interview with Freddie Spencer. Uh, Valencia, well, brought an end to the 2023 season. It was also 40 years since the American won his first world championship in what was another last round decider. So... By virtue of the fact that Freddie is at the Grand Prix, we managed to get some time. Um, people expecting maybe a blazing interview on his role, you know, with the FIM and, and the stewards and all the controversy that sometimes attracts. You'll be disappointed by this one because it was more of a retro look at his career rather than any current uh, exploits, I guess you could say. So, But apologies for that if you wanted something a little bit more um, topical and probing. But uh, people that remember the old 500cc days, then uh, maybe it'd be quite entertaining. So that's coming up later as uh, one of our first rental street sessions of the off season. Yeah, he does that a lot. He does actually do, Freddie Spencer does do quite a lot of interviews on uh, looking back at his writing career, but he is uh, notoriously uh, timid about speaking about his role as uh, the head of the FIM stewards. So the 2023 Valencia test, we were worried about the conditions. When we turned up Tuesday morning, it was undoubtedly cold. I don't think anybody really got out of the pit box until 
maybe half an hour after the session started. Dave, you were there right at the, the crack of dawn because um, I think it was uh, Gigi was speaking to the press. Uh, Ducati course sporting director. Is that his role? No, that's Paolo Chiabatti. Technical director. General manager, General manager, that's it. Yeah, yeah okay. he's, he's a CEO. I think I can't remember, but yes, you know, basically he's the, he's the big boss of Ducati uh, of Ducati Corsa. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, to be honest, we dodged a bullet because there was so much traffic um, uh, coming into the track to see Mark Marquez that uh, some uh, people who came in a little bit after us actually ended up getting stuck in traffic, waiting to uh, trying to get into the to, to the track. It wasn't quite Sunday levels, but I would, it was definitely sort of Friday uh, Friday or maybe Saturday levels. Well, the test ran from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. I think I got there around about 11, and there were at least a 1,000 people, I'd say, in the queue buying tickets. What was it, 10, 20 euros just to get in and watch the test? Yeah, it was quite staggering, to be honest. Like you say, Dave, the market's effect, and we'll come on to him in a minute. But going back to, you know, Gigi and Ducati, uh, like we said, he is a guy who can talk quite a lot without giving anything away or not giving you any specific details. But I did think one of the most telling comments he gave us was that the 2024 uh, GP Desmosedici is probably going to be a little bit more separated from the GP23. Uh, we've seen the 23 and the 22 this year quite similar in terms of performance. There's not a great deal of differences, certainly in terms of upgrades. You can maybe say, you know, the ride height, the, the sorry, the start device is the most notable thing. But um, yeah, Ducati may be inclining that the, the 24, the GP24 is going to be a little bit, you know, distant. Maybe back in, in other words, Bagnaia could have a better bike than Mark Marquez. He certainly will be, but I mean, you know, he had a, be a better bike than anyone on a GP22. It's just that the difference was smaller. It seems that what they've done, I think, in uh, between 21, 22, uh, they went a long way and um, basically brought lots and lots of parts which they couldn't test uh, uh, properly. They were testing all the way through, all the way basically through the first few sessions. Uh, of the opening Grand Prix in Qatar until Pekka Benyaya said, Roy, enough, stop it. And um, threw his toys out the pram, basically, and said, "We're not. I'm not going to do any more testing. They swung completely the opposite way between 22 and 23. The 23 bike was a much smaller upgrade. It was, you know, different. The engine was different, um, had a different feel to it. The, the frame was slightly different, but it wasn't uh, the, the big step. And now it feels like they're sort of swinging more towards the middle where it, there will be a bigger step, but it won't be a big step. They won't bring a lot of parts. Um, uh, certainly talking to the riders, talking to Pekka Banyaya and uh, Anea Bastianini, they weren't particularly sort of vocal. They, they didn't say that it was much of a, it was particularly big change. There was a change. Uh, the, the, the bike was a little bit better on corner entry. The engine had a little bit more power. It's a little bit more aggressive. Um, but it, they said it was, you know, it, it felt much more like 22, 23 to 23 rather than, uh, 21, 22. But, uh, I think we'll see the real change in Sepang. Sepang is where you'll see the, 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 all of the factories bring sort of much bigger steps. Speaking about Ducati, Neil, I think the biggest crowd outside of Pitbox, you were there yourself with your camera, you know, waiting to see a rider on a new motorcycle. Perhaps the last time was Jorge Lorenzo and his switch from Yamaha to Ducati. And I did feel a little pang of sympathy for, you know, Alex Marquez, actually, who pulled out of the Pitbox marginally before his brother and nobody barely noticed. Uh, I think, you know, maybe even his mechanic was looking towards his brother and when he was coming out. 
but yeah, it was another case of, you know, the biggest name in the paddock, in the sport, creating the biggest headline. Yeah, exactly. And it was always going to be this way the first time that we've ever seen Mark Marquez ride a MotoGP bike that, that wasn't a Honda. It was obviously going to be the, the biggest news of the day of Valencia on Tuesday. Um, and I think his performance just uh, just heightened that kind of that sense as well, because he was not immediately fast, but I think after about seven or eight laps, he was competitive. I think uh, on his first run, he went third. Obviously, you could see it took him a little bit of time just to get up to speed. Um, and he, for a couple of laps, was just trying to test out some different things, braking markers and, uh, and and riding style adjustments. But yeah, for him to be that competitive that early on the first day of testing was uh, was quite ominous, I think, for the rest of the field. Um, he ended the day fourth, but at one point in the afternoon, he went fastest. Um, and there were a couple of hints from his body language and what we could see in the, uh, the Grassini box that, that things were going pretty well. The first time he took his crash helmet off and sat next to his new crew chief, Cranky Carcetti, gave him a little smile and a wink, which just said, pretty nice. And um, there were some interesting comments that someone posted on uh, Twitter. I think, Dave, you had retweeted them. And I think there was a Sky Italia, or there was a camera basically in the Grassini box, and it was just recording what Mark was saying in his first kind of debrief with Frankie and the, the Ducati engineers. Um, and considering all the things he was saying, that most of the things that he, were, he was pointing out were, 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 were kind of negatives or things that he was having to adjust to. Um, you got the impression that there's still so much margin for improvement there. Um, and for him to be this fast with such a sizable margin, I think, uh, indicates that um, he's going to be very strong. But, I mean, this is not a surprise. I think everyone that has watched Mark Marquez closely and isn't an internet troll that just wants him to fail <laughs> would acknowledge that. So, um, yeah, very, very positive first day for the number 93. Um, and I'm not sure if other Ducati riders would be worried, but, yeah, it certainly shows that he's going to be up for it. Yeah, I mean, nobody was surprised that he was uh, that he was fast. Pekka Bagnell was saying, look, I told you when he signed the contract, um, he was going to be fastest at the test and it was not that far off. So, uh, yeah, not really a surprise. Also, I mean, one thing that's worth saying, th the fact that Mark's comments were negative um, uh, about all of the things that he needed to adapt, the things that were different, the things that he didn't like, um, this is exactly what MotoGP riders do. They, they you know, they will say, uh, okay, it does this well. But most of the thing is they're trying to fix all the things that they need fixing. So um, it, it can always sound uh, sort of, you know, almost like complaining, do you know what I mean? But they, they're just trying to go faster and faster and faster. So they're always looking for room for improvement. They're always looking for, okay, this could be better. I need to do, to fix this. Can we do this slightly differently so it's easier for me? It's it, it's um, the, the whole thing is just an endless search for improvement to go faster because if you're not trying to go faster, someone else is and you're going to get left behind. Two things, guys. We always say we cannot take too much away from the tests. Um, otherwise, you know, Maverick Vinales would be maybe a six times world champion by now. I, I think also, but there are kind of gestures, aren't there? I mean, we saw last year when Paulo Spargaro ended two years of, of largely misery of HRC with his body language jumping back on a motorcycle he knew pretty well in the gas gas, uh, the, the RC16 from KTM. And then this this time, as you said, Neil, the little to smile, the gesture there from Marquez, I mean, that was like uh, an instinctive reaction of somebody who's experiencing something new, maybe something a little bit more exciting. Uh, 
maybe something a little bit more liberating than what he's had. Uh, I think, you know, maybe that little gesture, you can read more into that than you can from, say, you know, a series of five to six lap times. Yeah, I think I think that's completely fair. I would posit that um, there have been a few occasions at the Valencia testing years gone by where we've we've kind of been made to look like fools. I remember Jorge Lorenzo's first day on the Ducati after his long stint on the Yamaha. I think at one point during his first or maybe second day, it was back when there was a two-day Valencia test, um, he went fastest and everyone in the press center started like applauding. And it was like, wow, this guy's going to be so fast immediately. And it as it turned out, it took uh, almost a season and a half for, for Lorenzo to get it fully up to speed and, and to win. But he did get there. He did get there. He did get there, but it wasn't an immediate transition. Um, and I seem to remember going to Jerez uh, after Lorenzo had switched from Ducati to Honda. And he wasn't allowed to speak at the that, that Jerez test. But a Spanish journalist, Manuel Pacino, who's been on the show a few times, I remember bumped into Jorge at a restaurant um, after the test had concluded and... Lorenzo said, oh, I love it. You know, the bike fits me perfectly. You know, I feel so comfortable <laughs> on it. And then, you know, Q 2019, his worst ever season and a season which ultimately led to his retirement. So, um, yeah, it, it's not always um, the best barometer of, of just how things are going to go. But I just can't see how this combination doesn't work. It's the the ergonomics. That was the thing that Lorenzo had to get his head around with the Ducati. I mean, that also could be an issue for Marquez. I mean, going quickly on a motorcycle, you would think that's not such a great stretch for such a brilliant rider. But the second thing I wanted to ask you guys about, and you touched on it there, Neil, is this, this policy of not being able to say a single thing. I mean, nobody from inside the team could even make a comment about Mark riding the Ducati. I mean, is this kind of excessive in this you know, heavily drenched social media world now where everything is accessible seconds after it's happened. I mean, you have to contrast the situation with Pedro Acosta, who's staying inside the peer mobility group structure. I mean, I think he was followed around by like four cameras. There were a ridiculous amount of microphones sticking over, just trying to pick up his very first reactions, the words, the dialogue, everything going on inside the pit box, whereas the Marquez garage was very much locked out. You think, well, that's a missed opportunity. And while you can understand it in one sense, because Marcus is then appearing in Honda's thanks day, he's putting back on a, a Repsol Honda and HRC cap, you know, only a few days after the test and riding another manufacturer's motorcycle. In another way, it just seems, you know, ridiculously kind of antiquated. Yeah, it's just the, it's just contracts. You know, contracts run until the uh, 31st of December. So, uh, you know, they're not allowed to say that. And uh, you are not going to be paying Mark Marquez a massive amount of money, you know, sort of whatever it is, 18, 19 million euros, uh, for him to then get off your bike onto someone else's bike and says, yeah, this one's much better. Yeah, and his team were... were restricted with what they could say. But Michele Messini, who I think is the general, the, the team manager of Grassini Racing, came up and spoke uh, for a few minutes at the end of, of Tuesday. Um, he didn't say a great deal uh, of uh, interesting words because he was so restricted. But there was one question which I thought was very telling where someone asked, so you must be expecting to fight for the championship next year? And he just said, yes. <laughs> I mean, can we really get away? Can, can we get that excited about it i mean one decent test does not a 44 race season make does it hello uh mark marquez mate um uh, you may have heard of him he's quite good apparently he's won a few races uh, i think he might have been a champion a couple of times so i'm sort of suspecting that on a semi-decent motorcycle he might be reasonably competitive well with that level of sarcasm then dave then i guess uh, the answer is uh, quite dismissive of my original thought 
Yeah, with a mark that uh, scored, what was it, 700 constructors points from a possible 728 in the, the 2023 World Championship. So you two are already putting your money on it then? No, I don't think it's as clear cut as that. But Well, you just contradicted yourself. No, I didn't. If you listen to my full answer, you would realize that it's not a contradiction. Uh, I'm not saying I'm putting my money on him, but he's, I mean, he's definitely going to be a challenger. No, no question about that. Yeah. I mean, if you have to put your money on it, 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 the first person you put money on is you put money on Mark Marquez because he's Mark Marquez and he's on a competitive motorcycle. Uh, the second person you put your mar- money on is Pekka Benyaya because I think he proved this season that he's just been really outstanding. He made a huge step, I think, between 22 and 23. Um, thanks also to Jorge Martin because Martin really pushed him hard uh, so yeah I mean you, you, you're, you've you got the greatest motorcycle race or the, the most talented motorcycle racer ever to you know to, to, to swing his leg over a, a two wheeled empowered vehicle and uh, he's on the best or well what's going to be the second best uh, racing motorcycle on the grid and the, and, the, and the gap between the best and the second best bike is not going to be all that big it, you would be foolish to bet against him yeah that's a great shout on Bagnaya there Dave uh, but what about Jorge Martin himself because you know the test was a little bit turbulent I mean he went into the gravel I think it, well at least once um, maybe twice. twice yep so two crashes there for the championship runner-up and also like a rumor sort of hovering in the background that you know the the bridge or the ties with Ducati are a little bit frayed, and you know. But I'm just thinking, you know, if Martin is going to be one of the first big movers in the contract kind of swing that goes on in 2024, then where realistic realistically could he go? I mean, would he be Luca Marini's teammate for 2025 in in HRC? What what other options could there be if he's that fed up with being in Ducati's stable? I think that's a really good question because if I mean if you look through the um if you look through the list of seats which are going to be available for uh you know Ducati is going to be Pecco Bagnaia and somebody else um now normally you would say put uh, Jorge Martin in there but uh you know maybe it's going to be Fabio Quartararo um maybe it's going to be maybe it's going to be Joan Mir maybe it's going to be you know there's lots of people it could be um I think it's more likely to be Fabio Quartararo uh Martin just seems to believe that he's sick of uh, Ducati you know he's feel that he's been sort of done over by him twice he nearly managed to win and win a championship with them um uh, KTM is full uh, Brad Binder is on a, 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 a 3000 year contract and uh Pedro Acosta is obviously going to take the second seat in 2025 um that leaves Aprilia I think Aprilia is the interesting one to me because I think Aprilia is Maverick Vinales, well, Maverick Vinales is Maverick Vinales, you know, a winter testing champion who's really fast and just always seems to find a spectacular way to uh, uh, for, for things to go wrong. Uh, Alicia Spargro, you have to ask, you know, does he want to keep on going? Do Aprilia want to get a, a different rider and a better rider in or someone they think ha- could be better? Um, that's definitely the interesting one. And, the, uh, and as you say, what about Honda? You know, if Honda has made that step, uh, then it gets really interesting. So, yeah, there's, there's, I, it's going to be interesting to see. I, and I think uh, Jorge Martin, I think Jorge Martin and Mark Marquez are going to be the two, and Fabio Quartararo. They're going to be the three riders around which everything is going to revolve. Martin showed that he has a little bit of 
perception or at least the people guiding him when it comes to MotoGP class when he jumped out of the KTM or the Pira Mobility Group system to join Ducati at a time when the bike was really, you know, the competitive one to have on the grid. But if he also kind of severs ties there, then he's limiting his options, isn't he, Dave? I mean, he could just, like you say, a pretty, it could be something or he has to contemplate a Japanese bike, but then he will be, in theory, a factory rider. Yeah, but I mean, it's not going to be the kind of ugly split that um, will see him blow a chance to go back to uh, Ducati in the same way that we're seeing now with Mark. You know, could Mark go back to her, to Honda? I think he definitely could. I'm not necessarily saying he will, even though he said lots of nice things about Honda at the Honda Thanks Day, which, you know, it's called Honda Thanks Day for a reason. He's not going to sit there and, and sort of, you know, scream and shout at them for being, for, for ruining his, the, the last couple of years. Um, he's always going to say nice things about Honda. So, yeah, I think it's um, it, he has a chance to go back. He's not going to be burning any bridges when he leaves Ducati. He's going to be making it very obvious, you know, look, there's not a chance for me in the factory team or, you know, maybe there's not the kind of chance that I need in the in the factory team. I've got a better offer elsewhere. I'm going somewhere else. He's n He wasn't the fastest, but he wasn't the slowest. Neil, how, how should we feel about Pedro Acosta and his sort of first dance on a MotoGP bike? In contrast to people like Pekka Bagnaya, who had, you know, little tasters of what a MotoGP bike is about. I think he rode the Aspar one um, before he came into the class the year before. Uh, you know, Acosta, I think we could agree, all three of us, and a lot of people online as well, that he looked very much at home on the bike. He did, yeah. And uh, he looked pretty at home on the bike as early as uh, the end of his first run, I believe. Speaking to a photographer uh, that was watching out around the track, they said it was it was ridiculous how comfortable he looked almost immediately on the MotoGP machine. And that should come as no great surprise because what Acosta has shown us in his short career is that he is an expert at adapt adapting to new situations. Um, and yeah, he was he was pretty quick it's always difficult to read too much into into rookie performances at Valencia um but I think you know across the 18th doesn't sound like much but to be just 1.2 seconds off the uh, the quickest time of the day set by Vinales I think is uh is is a pretty handy starting point um and just his comments afterwards about you know how content how happy he was with how the day had gone I think that spoke more than his times out on the track so um yeah it wasn't like headline grabbing times that, that he said but I think the fact that he looked so good on the bike immediately and that he sounded so so upbeat at the close of the day um was uh you know the, those were the things that you would take take away from it there was a lot of fuss going on around him I mean Dave there was a point where it seemed like Paul Charathan you know a great crew chief so you think that's a good start for Pedro right away was almost saying, well, listen, this is uh, the bit on the right that makes you go fast. And this is the bit on the left that you might need to hang on to. And there's all these buttons that are doing this, this and that. Uh, it was a bit of, it was just like a, you know, a deep end induction, wasn't it, to a MotoGP bike? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting seeing that uh, over the uh, engine mapping buttons, they'd uh, stuck a few uh, pointers to make, to, you know, to remind him which, which was which. Augusto Fernandez was interesting because he also said that, um, because you saw at one point on the footage that, um, uh, or at least I think they should, I don't know if I saw it live sort of, you know, from the pits or if it was on the footage, but you saw him actually looking at the, uh, at the handlebars, looking at the ride height device, how to deploy it and all the rest of it. Um, and um, Augusto Fernandez says, you know, the first time I rode a MotoGP bike, 
I wasn't ready to use that. Uh, it, it took me a couple of tests to do that, but Acosta was already using it. He was already sort of understanding it. Um, he obviously learns fast. He did look fantastic. Um, I did run the numbers on his times. And again, it's actually when I did it, it just proved to me that it's really difficult to make comparisons. Um, if you just look at the raw numbers, in terms of what I did is I took the numbers and made the percentage uh, uh, the percentage difference to the fastest rider. Um, and Acosta's a debut from that perspective was the second best uh, in terms of um, uh, or, uh, the second best since 2012 compared to Mark Marquez. Um, but then again, if you look at, uh, for example, you know, Brad Binder, um, Fabio Quartararo, they all had absolutely terrible, you know, they were sort of, you know, two and a half, three percent off the, uh, the fastest times, but, that's just a sign of how difficult the conditions are, how different the comparisons are, and, and how it's very tricky to actually try to draw any conclusions from just one test. Yeah, and you could say that MotoGP machines are a bit more complicated to jump on as a rookie nowadays with uh, with all the, the kind of the devices that you have to get your head around. Like you're not really using those kind of things on any other racing motorcycle. Um, and one thing that I thought was interesting from Acosta's comments afterwards, he said, you know, if he improved two tenths, he would pretty much be in the top 10. And if you looked at his final or his last flying lap, I think he was just over half a second off coming through uh, sector number three. And he was saying he was losing everything in the last sector. So, um, you know, he was there, thereabouts really um, with his with his times in that first day. So, yeah, re- really positive, I would say. There was one sort of comment which I think might have been innocent but sounded really quite cheeky when he was saying he was asked, uh, he was asked about, you know, people had said that he looked so comfortable on the bike and had he looked at uh, footage of himself. He said, yeah, I saw some stuff on Instagram and uh, I can't get used to me seeing in red. I'm so used to seeing myself in orange, which could also be red as bad. Basically, you know, like uh, uh, Jack. Uh, thanks for keeping the seat wall for us, mate. Uh, but I'll be I'll be needing it at some point in the near future. So yeah, it, it, it was. A, I'm sure it was completely innocent, but I did uh, I did get some joy out of completely mis- misinterpreting it. Yeah, that analysis is cool, Dave. I mean, I can remember Brad Binder in the Valencia test being well over two seconds off the best lap. But then when we came around to Hareth, I mean, it was the COVID year when he made like his debut. He was competitive and it was uh, it was a quick adjustment. It does make you wonder what these guys go through during the winter, that you know, very short break before they again get to go to Sepang and try this thing out, both in terms of mentally getting their head around the game, but also in a physical sense. Yeah, but I, it's an extremely well-known phenomenon that if you learn something, that, that this is something sleep plays an enormous amount of um, uh, a, a huge role in. You, uh, If you do something for the first time one day and then go away, go to sleep, come back the next day, or you immediately make it a massive step because your uh, your sort of your brain and your body sort of figure the whole thing out while you're sleeping. Uh, and then you've, you've you've made a bit of an advantage. Now, of course, it, it's quite a lot of sleeps until the next time Padre Acosta gets to, to ride a MotoGP bike. Um, but, uh, you know, you've, you've got to think that the lad is going to be uh, pretty tasty once he gets going. What about the Japanese? I, I mean, Honda, you didn't into a Dramir before the race in Valencia, David. He said he just was looking at Tuesday. That was all his focus was on. Forget about, you know, the sprint, the race and everything else. Uh, so Honda had some new tricks up their sleeve. And Yamaha, I think it was very noticeable, the extra staff they had there. Um, you know, both evidently from, from Japan, as well as the full test team, Kyle Crutchlow, I think was the only rider really from a separate testing program to also be at Valencia. 
Uh, it seemed like, you know, both Yamaha and Honda were were taking this first, you know, kind of look towards 2024 with a lot of seriousness. Yeah, I mean, Shawan Mayer actually ended up getting out of uh, the uh, sprint and the race by the simple expedient of falling off and hurting his neck. Um, he was extremely pleased after the after the test. He said, "You know, this is this is the first time that I've actually felt a difference. That I felt that they've made a a, a a big step in all of the stuff that they've had to change uh, had to test." So that was very promising. The bike looked completely different. There was no part of it looked the same. Swing arm was different. Engine was different. The frame was different. Although I'll say the frame maybe looks a little bit like the frame that they tried in uh, at the Misano test um, uh, the aero was different the tail was different the exhaust was different um, the, the the tail had once again got sort of you know got larger for, with the possibility that there's a mass damper in there um, all of the Hondas were quick all of the Hondas were uh, pretty happy about the progress made those who could speak it was also interesting hearing about Luca Marini Luke Marini uh, was the first to go out on track. Um, he was very keen, but also he was just very, um, I mean, he, again, he wasn't allowed to speak, but he was, he, he looked like he was being extremely methodical, working through everything, knew what to expect. Uh, and I, I, I really like the idea of, of Luca Marini being uh, on that Repsol Honda bike. I think he's the perfect rider at the perfect time. Yeah, interesting that Marini slotted into Mir's crew and Mir has moved across to work with Marquez's crew for 2024. And I think one of the more telling things about Honda um, was, I mean, there was a rumour or, or some kind of chat in the, the media centre that um, this uh, this new bike basically was eight kilos lighter than uh, what they were racing in 2023. I then saw Emilio Perez de Rosas, a Spanish or Catalan journalist who is very well connected uh, to the, the Repsol Honda team reporting this in uh, El Periodico. Uh, newspaper um one or two people on twitter have cast slight aspersions on the on whether honda could have shed as much weight as as eight kilos or not but certainly uh members from the the, the very top levels of, of the repsol honda team were, were going on record um and, and saying that this bike was considerably lighter um and what the article was also saying was that this was essentially a bike that's been built in two months, you know, after the, the Mizano test, which was not a success by any stretch. You could say it was probably the final nail in the coffin in terms of Mark Marquez's relationship with Honda for the time being. Um, yeah, the, the, the fact that they've gone away and in two months come back with something that is considerably better than what uh, they had before. I think it bodes, it bodes quite well for Honda because at this stage last year, um, they just seemed completely rudderless, completely directionless, unaware of which steps forward they needed to take. And for them to have built a completely new bike and for the, the early impressions to already be quite positive, I think, is is something that we haven't seen from Honda in, in quite some time. It, it, it sort of makes you think that Honda didn't truly believe that Mark could leave or would leave. And the fact that he did leave, I think, has given them uh, a, a sort of the, the kick up the arse that they needed to actually be more aggressive in, in trying to develop the bike. Um, just to go back to the weight, I mean, like eight kilos seems like a lot to me as well. However, uh, Juan Mir was very clear, you know, the bike is, he said the bike is lighter. And when, the, when they say the bike is lighter, um, uh, normally if it's only been a small step, they'll say it's a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. He doesn't use the word a little bit about lighter at all. So I think it has lost several kilos. Um, eight might be at the upper end of it. I thought I saw some people kicking around 
you know, like they'd lost eight kilos, they're going to lose another six. Now, that to me seems extraordinarily improbable um, that the Honda would be, hang on, 14, 171 kilos. That would be, that, that would be, one, the, the minimum weight has to be, it is 157 kilos um, or without fuel, basically. So, yeah, I, to me, I, I think it could, it could well have been sort of, you know, 165-ish. Uh, 163 maybe a little bit overweight so yeah that they would lose uh several kilos i would believe and yes you would absolutely feel that uh, feel that difference i mean you know it's, it's the same when you're um uh you know when you fill up after um, uh, after riding although for me now with with my bike it's got an absolutely massive fuel tank and so it really does make a huge difference but even before you know you you put you put fuel in the tank and the, and the bike really feels very different because all of a sudden you know you've got all this extra mass to move around it's still way too early to know if honda and yamaha are around the corner but there was some encouraging signs right i mean we should take the fact that there was a lot of extra staff there was some new stuff so soon after the mizano test Dave, will Sepang and, and the first sort of real test ahead of 2024 also be too soon to really know, you know, if the Japanese have made any steps? Uh, no, Sepang is where you, we will know. Um, there is between Sepang, I think there's two or three, I think there's like three weeks between the Sepang test and the and the Qatar test. Uh, already booked my flights for Sepang. Uh, very excited about it. Um, and got your interview requests in. You nerd. Yeah, exactly. It's December. At least one. Take interview. a day off, man. Yeah, but I mean, even, you haven't even got a pass yet. And, and no, well, uh, unfortunately, I can get by on my twenty twenty three pass, so uh, so we should be grand. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, like, I think uh, I, we will we will learn a lot more at like Sepang is where all the big upgrades will have to be. Um, we will see we will see if, for example, Yamaha brought a new engine again. Yamaha have got a new aero, which seems to make a big difference. Um, that was received quite positively. They had a new frame, which wasn't all that much, um, which was received less positively. Um, Fabio Quattararo was banging on about horsepower again, um, which, again, is not the problem. The problem is what he means by horsepower is acceleration. Uh, so, yeah, there's still this real there's still a, a feeling that the Yamaha is still lacking in drive they really need to improve their their, their drive off of the corner they really need to improve the, the, the their acceleration that is the weak point of the of the Yamaha it has improved through the season but they need to make another uh, another step there to, to really make a step forward so um yeah i mean no, i think they're definitely moving in the right direction there's a lot of work happening they seem to also have um their testing program a little bit better obviously with the new concession systems the mr will be allowed to take part in the shakedown test uh, which again gives them uh, basic it's probably going to be like two days two of the three days that um uh, that Fabio Quattraro and Alex Rins will get to ride the bike. Um, so, yeah, th that's going to help. That's going to make a bit of a difference. Talking of brands, teams and riders, then check out our Patreon channel. We're going to be having some smaller kind of bite-sized podcasts over the winter where we'll just do some bench racing on what's happened and what could happen. So don't forget to check out that particular resource. Um, talking about Honda itself, we know we've got interviews coming up with Giacomo Guidelti, uh, now crew chief to Luca Marini. 
uh, was working with Joan Mir this year, of course. Uh, and Neil, you also spoke to Lucio Cecchinello of LCR Honda. They're changing riders again this uh, for 2024. So that also should be some content coming up. Um, speaking of Honda, of course, as we mentioned at the top of the show, our rental street session, we were able to speak with Freddie Spencer, who won his first world championship in 1983 after a titanic battle with uh, Kenny Roberts. And so we're going to play this interview right now. Freddie, thanks for joining us. It's an interesting season in MotoGP this year. And of course, 40 years on from your fantastic, you know, first world championship in 83. Take me back or raid the memory banks if you can. Take me back a little bit to that time because obviously the dispute was happening with Kenny. I think right. you both won like six GPs that we year. We did. We, we won. You split the, the stats. We did. We did. And it was the championship basically came down to... Um, we had the same amount of wins, the same amount of uh, seconds, and then I had one more third than he did. I had two thirds, and he had a he had a fourth. We had the same amount of DNFs, you know, did not finishes. So it was uh, it was extremely competitive, and um, I think what made it really interesting. I still have people I mean, this year, you know, I have people like, wow, this this battle between Pecco and and uh, and Martinez is, is similar, like you and Kenny, you know. Um, and I said, well, yes, I think you have different personalities, uh, different, a little bit different uh, for Kenny and I. The the bikes, the Yamaha V four versus the Honda three cylinder, so completely different engine characteristics. Um, I was on Michelin's. He was on Dunlop. So the tire uh, characteristics were different. You know, this year, of course, the battle, they're on Ducatis and tires are the same. But I think with Kenny and I, it was probably the, such a diverse difference in our personalities and riding styles. Kenny was King Kenny, you know, the master of the uh, mind games and, and, uh, and such a, a fierce, 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 overpowering character and personality uh, where I was, I was very shy uh, still at that time at 21. Um, I was, you know, had quite a bit of obviously experience, but I was, uh, my, my personality was a lot more subdued than Kenny, say the least. Fred, you started the se the season stronger, I think. Yes. I, I mean, there was like five wins in the first seven races, something like that. I mean, one of the biggest differences we should also explain to people who are MotoGP fans now, I mean, it was a 12-round championship back then. I mean, it was... Right. I'm just wondering what was sort of your mindset to approaching a 12-round season compared to the guys now can contemplating 20 and then 22 next year. Right. Well, I, I would think... Well, I, probably the simplest way would be it'd be more like the sprint race. Um, you know, our, our Grand Prix were the same distance and length of the, the races as they run today. Um, but being 12 races, I, I remember it just so vividly, um, going into the championship, I knew that the getting off to a, a quick start would be very critical. Um, I, I knew the, the characteristics of Kenny's V4 and that Yamaha would always bring updates around Assen around mid season. So I wanted to get that quick start and and it worked out you know the first three wins um including the one at monza which was surprising it was, it was 
the one time we were going to race there, as it turned out, it was the only time in my career. But it was one Grand Prix I really wanted to win because being the Italian Grand Prix at Monza. And um, I'm such a history about the history. I, You know, the, the tragic accident there. I remember when I looked at the, the old banking, which, you know, of course they didn't use um, in 83. Cause it had been gone for years. But it's where Pasolini and Jarno Saarinen had their tragic accident. And so just the, the history of the event was really important. But it didn't suit us. But a lot of times... That's kind of how you know the championship is going your way. We we hung on there, and I was able to kind of push Kenny into a mistake through the parabolica. He he ran off the track and had a little low side crash, and ended up fourth. That fourth was the deciding factor in the championship later in the season. Um, but you're right, getting that quick start was was critical for us. I mean, of course, it went down to that famous. Well, there was that. Yeah. kind of flashpoint in Sweden, but right. then, you know, the final round, I think, was in Italy, San Marino. Right, that's right. I mean, can you, is there part of you that remembers the emotions or the tensions, you know, when it comes to, like, Peko, you sure. know, and also Jorge now? Of course. I mean, can you, does part of you go of back there and think, well, I know what these guys are going through? Of course, absolutely. I know the pressure they're under and the, also the personal expectation. I mean, if you go into, I, I could tell you the last three races real quick. I, we, we go into Silverstone, and Kenny had closed down the gap uh, because I had over pushed the front too hard in Spa. was leading the race by 10 seconds, and then Kenny ran me down and, and beat me there. And so we go to Silverstone, which is three races to go, and and there's no way I can beat him there. I know it. By that time, they had brought the updates like they always do in, in Aston. I was hanging on by my fingernails. I, there's a story I talk, say in my book about on Friday afternoon, and, and I can't get within a second of Kenny, and I'm sitting in the garage in the corner kind of, and, and Irv Kanemoto and everybody, everybody who's my crew chief, they're all kind of like off to the side working on the bike, and, and uh, I felt these hands on my, my shoulders, and I look up, and this, this gentleman's standing there, and he goes, Freddie, do you know who I am? I go, of course, it's John Surtees. And uh, he goes... I know you're feeling a lot of pressure," he said. "But just hang in there; it'll be fine." And I'm, go- you know, and I'm like thinking, "Okay, yeah, I hope so." And but there, I felt like it was going to be fine. And and all you can do is go out there and you you push hard, put it all on the line. I ended up in the race, getting second somehow. Um, not somehow I got second, but they had, it started raining. They restarted the race and and uh, aggregate time, and it was by like two thousandths of a second total time i beat eddie and and randy momola for a second surely it wasn't raining in silverstone oh, yeah <laughs> exactly right and so we go into sweden and sweden was a track that that was strong for us and we know we i needed to win there and if i knew if i won there won there then i could go in emola which another track with the five chicanes wouldn't be really good for us because the acceleration de- deficiency that we had on the v4 and um, everybody knows it came down to the last, you know, like two corners from the end. But uh, I basically had kind of pushed Kenny into a little bit of a mistake coming on the back straightaway, got it next to him. And, and uh, we neither one of us going to roll off until the other one rolled off. And, and we got in really deep. And, but I was, able to, I was able to hang on and get, get win the race. It's interesting. I think that you I, – I know for myself that I – Many times in going to these races, I kind of feel like I know what's going to happen. You know, you, you're so prepared, 
which is the key. And I think these guys are in the same boat. You know, it's like you look at Pecco today versus yesterday where he wasn't even in Q, you know, Q2. And he goes out and, and gets quick time. And we've seen him do that a few times this year. That's a confidence. That's kind of like a comfort level that you know you can raise your own level of performance to get the job done. And it's why he's probably, you know, the favorite to maintain the championship. You know, and, I mean, he's he's come through when he needs to. And, um, you know, and so I, I look back at that championship with Kenny and I, even when I was struggling, I felt like it was going to be okay. We're, we're talking on Saturday in Valencia, and, of course, we had some fun and games on Friday. Yeah. Uh, was there any of that kind of, like, that gamesmanship, those of course. games going on? Can you remember Of course. Any? Well, with Kenny in Sweden, the race that we were talking about that I um, – you know, that I was able to, to, to get the win with that one race to go. I was so much quicker than Kenny in, in practice. In those days, practice qualifying, we didn't have a separate qualifying. Every session was basically qualifying. And I was like a second quicker. I get in the race, and he had been sandbagging, <laughs> you know, because, you know, and, and so it, it basically came down to like normal, like it had, it had been the last for most of the season where it was just him and I battling every lap, every corner, uh, and, uh, which made it, which made it incredible and pushing each other just to get that extra level of performance and raising the level of, of, uh, of what we could do. Cody, do you find it interesting sometimes because four decades have passed and MotoGP looks a vastly different sport. I mean, in your current role now, of course, you're Mm -hmm. having an influence, but then the instincts and the skills mm-hmm. and, and the mentality, everything is, is same. still the same, right? Oh, absolutely the same. You know, it's when I talk with the riders and watching them, absolutely. Certainly the equipment. Everything evolves. Um, you know, their their individual preparation, you know, I talked about this with, with another uh, interview I was doing, talking about the individual preparation because of the level of the performance of the bikes because of the precision of different things. Sure, that all improves, but the mind, the mind, the preparation, the approach to getting that, the emotion, all of that's it's the same. And uh, so that, you know, and raising the level and pushing each other and all of those things are, are the same. Your era started as sort of Kenny's finished, and there was a bit of an overlap there. But then, like, Eddie, I think that was his first season next to Kenny on, on the was, Yamaha. It was. Uh, Randy, of course, was, like, yeah. on the scene. And I, and I looked it up. I think, you know, 84 and then 85, I mean, there was America, the U.S., wiped mm-hmm. the floor. I mean, I don't think there was any other nationality winning Grand Prix. Uh, I think maybe when we came to... Um, 86 then yeah. Wayne Wayne right, you know started right. to put some Australian influence sure, in there sure but uh yeah I mean how do you sort of feel about that now because I mean talk about a golden age for for your nation it's but you know then it kind of swung drastically I know um I you know I've been asked so many times what do you think it was I it to me it's pretty clear basically with the evolution and the development of Grand Prix racing in the late 70s went from the treaded tires to slicks, two strokes to increase in power. That coincided with basically the Americans, Kenny coming along, I mean, Steve Baker and Pat Hennon really before and at the same time of Kenny, 
Uh, Steve Baker's the very first road racing world champion for America, Fulham 750, 77. But all of that's them, and then myself, Randy, and Eddie, all dirt trackers. And so we came along at a perfect time to when our skill level could utilize the tools better. And we kind of raised the bar of our performance and what we could use and use the two strokes, the power, the extra grip, the the stability as the development of the chassis came along. We went from uh, chromoly tube to aluminum box frame in, in 83, 84, um, unit pro suspension. All that was stability and, and adjustment, which again, which allowed us to better utilize the higher grip. And so, again, we could push. I know, I know, I did a lot of the tire development, and you know, you get Michelin would give me more rear grip, and I'd overuse the front, get more more front grip, and it pivot around, and then we need more edge grip. All of those things would increase the lap time. I'll give you a real quick example. In '82, my very first Grand Prix win was at Belgium. I qualified at 240, and. Uh, in the race, I ran a 236, high 236, won the race. In 85, four seasons later, 83, 84, 85, well, three, yeah, four, three seasons, but four races later, I won the race. I probably would have lapped myself. <laughs> it was almost, almost 10 seconds a lap faster. And that was the golden era of true bike development as far as Chassis, we went from the monoshock to unit proling, bias to radial tires, uh, V3 to V4s. And so that was, but a lot of that came along because of the riders at the time. Again, like I was saying, our bike control, my bike control, because of my enhanced and developed senses of movement and control from dirt tracking, fit right in with with the road racing part. And that's why we dominate in 83 Top four was all Americans. I mean, you talk about the skills, but as you look back on your career, there must be a part of you that think, well, for all the talent I had, for the mentality and the dedication I had, there's still so much to do with timing, like teams oh, and absolutely. machinery. And it must absolutely. Be, it must fry your brain sometimes. Yeah. Think, wow, how could I have been in that right place at the right time sometimes? Well, I, or, I, or the wrong? Yeah, of course. I talk about my book. Very, I mean, and real quick, I, you know, I saw a photo when I was a little kid in the local Honda dealership, and it was Mr. Honda and a gentleman, J.W. Gorman. And then, you know, I'm looking to sign the Kawasaki after I won the Subike in 79 on, on the factory Kawasaki. And then I thought, well, and I ended up getting a phone call from a guy named Dennis McKay. American Honda was putting together the Honda program, Subike program. You know, and then I win the world championship in 83 and Mr. Honda going to his house. And you think timing is everything. And, and there's, there's, you know, fate, there's, there's, you know, that intuitive side of, of life that I think is extremely powerful, uh, that we pay attention to or not. And, uh, that, that has an effect on right decisions and wrong decisions, you know? So I just remembered actually, I think the rider that broke the American streak was Christian Saron, um, in 85. I think, you know, it took, that was the, the you know, yeah, premier he won class. It, he won yeah. it Germany. That's right. That was yeah, his, right. his only GP win, I that's think. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Just, he passed me there at the end. Yeah. <laughs> just too Not long. that I remember too well. 
Just two no. more things. Um, yeah. Going back to that 83 season, I mean, you mentioned some iconic circuits. And, yes. You know, racing at Monza, for example. Sure. Was there any track there that where you thought, you know, this this is a little sketchy. This is um, something that, I don't know, that's maybe burning a little bit more in the front of your consciousness for the risks you were taking. I think there's still some YouTube footage of you guys racing at Le Mans, which was a late swap in, I think. Right, for the French right, TV. right. In, in fact... Um, yeah, 83, because where it all started was Nagaro, yeah. the French Grand Prix in 82 that we boycotted. It was the first and only time we'd boycotted there, uh, which ended up, which kind of led where, where with Mike, Mike Trimby, Mike, the incident with Norman Brown and them um, at the British Grand Prix in 83, um, where they had the accident on the first lap, and, and then they ended up restarting the race. Um and then that's kind of what ended up leading to the riders' organization, which we, Kenny had retired, but Christian and Randy and I, we had done it then in 84 because we hired Mike. And uh, Mike came on board in 85. And then, of course, we know the rest is history with, with her to beginning in 86. You know, sometimes there's incidents, tragic situations, again, that timing of, of the right person at the right time that gets involved to be able to kind of propel it because the writers that had talked about for years trying to start something you know that'd be a whole conversation we could have <laughs> like with barry and and kenny and the uh the world series yeah. they were trying to do in 79 um there's that famous where kenny didn't go on the podium at harama in spain um that was you the know, backdrop to the Silverstone. That's right. Well, yeah. That's right. And then, like I said, and then it just kind of stuttered along. It really didn't get started until, until, like I said, we did that in in '84, and of course, what led to what is earlier today. But, uh, you know, I I think looking at the tracks, we could look at Spa. You know, the old, even when they redid and we came back in in '83, '84, '85. You know. When you come out of the new section over to the old part, the guardrail was right there. Uh, and, you know, it, it took, you know, it just step by step, those improvements. Um, and today to where we, the emphasis is on the safety aspect of it, and, and uh, which is good. Yeah, I mean, metal and hay just seem no. to be two identifiable, Absolutely. you know, pieces of, of Grand Prix racing back then. Absolutely. It's quite staggering to, to yes. look back at it now. Yeah. Um, lastly, Freddie, just the second phase of your career, your involvement with World Championships, seen you back in the paddock. How many years now have you been? Since been 19. 19, yeah, okay. 19. So, right, yes. so you're nearly yeah. up to five years. I just wondered, you know, how that move, did it kind of rejig some passion for you? Did it reignite something? I mean, how was it again following yeah. the GP Well, the you world? know, it's basically... I, racing has been my life, obviously, and it's given me so much, and it's given me so many opportunities in so many ways. And uh, you know, I was asked to to come along and, and to to do this and to to influence the the uh, stewards panel to where we are today. We have our own room and our own tools and things, and uh, so that's good. But I've always been inspired uh, in in new avenues and new ways to contribute so this is just one of them um we've had your time thank you very much generously pleasure. for this first world title on 83 so for in two years time can we have double the amount of time for uh, absolutely It'd be my pleasure <laughs> yeah yeah Thanks since it's two classes you betcha thank <laughs> you again, thank you my pleasure Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. We're just going to play out with the latest bit of news coming up in MotoGP. We're recording this uh, probably at not the best time, actually, uh, just as 
well, some news or a launch or a presentation on a brand new team coming to the grid um, after RNF Aprilia uh, imploded uh, quite suddenly, uh, leaving several of us out of pocket, not just the people on the podcast, I imagine, but also some other people in the paddock. Uh, quite an inglorious exit for the um, Romanian back crew there. But there is going to be a new player on the MotoGP grid in 2024. Dave, what do we know so far? Uh, we know there's going to be an announcement on Tuesday, um, uh, and that's about well. We know there's going to be an announcement on Tuesday. We don't know officially what the announcement is going to be about, uh, but uh, it seems almost certain that it's going to be the new team uh, run by uh, Justin Marks and Trackhouse Racing. What we also know is that uh, uh, ex. Alpine Stars um, uh, press uh, press boss or media boss um, Jeremy uh, Appleton was in Valencia. He was uh, showing around a, a chap called PJ Rashidi, who is also working with Trackhouse uh, uh, with Trackhouse Racing. Um, he is also uh, ex Alpine Stars. He was part of. He ran their auto racing program at the start of the century. So um, that all looks to be on. On. I mean, I I ha I saw them talking to Paola Bonora, uh, Aprilia's boss. So that would you know like just put the just join the dots. It seems fairly obvious of what's going to happen. Um, it seems like what they're going to do is just take over the team, pretty much lock, stock, and barrel. Uh, they're won't be you know there won't be Razlan Rosali obviously the crypto data guys are all gone um the the question is whether um Wilco Zinenberg comes back or not I don't know what happens to Cito Pons again we don't know uh there's sort of that 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 level is is a little bit interesting but below that it you know the mechanics will be the same the riders will be all the, uh, will be the same um there'll be a different press officer for uh because Maria uh, is off to do uh, World Superbikes. But, uh, you know, it, it, the team is going to be almost pretty much unchanged for next year. We're recording on Monday. We hope to have uh, Jeremy on the show next week, where hopefully he'll be able to tell us a lot more. But, Neil, uh, this is going to be largely American presence on the MoGP grid, which, considering how Dorna have employed an American COO, uh, and they're looking to, well, I mean, you have to, it's obvious that the Red Bull Grand Prix of the Americas is, is an event where they want to improve the profile. They want to improve the attendance. You know, it's it's one of the maybe flagship events in, in a big market. So maybe this is something that, you know, it's maybe we've been hovering in the background for a while. If there ever was a team that was looking a little bit shaky and wanted to step away from MotoGP, then getting a team of this ilk, because it's not just another Spanish or Italian-based or Eurocentric base squad it's something that's a little bit adventurous exactly yeah um and i mean we spoke to uh Dorna's new cco dan rosamondo back in Mugello, i think ad and he was telling us that you know the american market is basically what model gp needs to aim for um if you can get make a success of that almost the the rest of the the rest of the show will fall into place uh, so to speak so the fact that there is going to be an american representation in terms of the teams i think that's a good thing um you know there's lots of marketing possibilities for that um and you have to imagine um that there'll be scarring 
uh, for a way to to eventually get a, an American into the Premier class if, uh, if if it is possible within the next couple of years. Um, but yeah, I think it's um, it's definitely an interesting development. Um, some news reporting that um, this was being discussed maybe as early as Austria. I think uh, some of the the contingent from from the new team were were in the paddock then um, being introduced to Rond. Um and um, yeah, it could be a, a bit of a shot in the arm for for the series in America. Dave, just a quick one for you. Is this something, is this a bit of a black eye for MotoGP that you have like a, a prominent satellite team with an outside sponsor coming in and it all end, ending quite messily at the final race of the season? Or is it just one of these things where the really the, the economics of, of racing can sometimes be a bit harsh? Uh, I think that um, the nature of all forms of motorsports, the fact that it involves uh, lots of... Uh, how can I put this nicely? It involves uh, uh, lots of uh, financial streams of money and funding from all around the world flowing into companies with expenses all around the world makes it very attractive to all sorts of people who are interested in um, avoiding all too close examination of their uh, tax situation so yeah i think there's uh or, or you know the, the legal basis of their company so i think it's very attractive to all sorts of dodgy companies uh we've seen this in you know we've seen the same in formula one all these crypto firms coming in all these nft people coming in uh, nfts collapsing and then going uh, going away um it, it's just one of those things i mean the the whole thing there were people who were crypto you know sort of who were criticizing the crypto data thing right from the start um it all sounded i mean i was skeptical but uh, too lazy to write about it um so yeah it's, it's just one of those things you know there are this is not the first time it's happened it definitely won't be the last time and basically just go through lists of people sponsors and try and figure out what they do why they're investing and um uh, you know to draw up your own sort of uh, your, your own your own list of of who's going to who will be next you managed such a fine answer there, Dave. I was thinking of Steve on editing duty, just avoiding any push possible libel uh, situation. <laughs> and I thought, you know, up until the word dodgy, I thought you were on the money. But now uh, I guess we might have to chop a few words out. But uh, there we go. Neil, um, you know, you're sort of famous amongst uh, us, your colleagues, your friends, for your knowledge of stats and race results. So um, can you tell us exactly what position you finished in the Fantasy League this year and, um, you know, how smug are you feeling about it? Uh, you were the champion among the podcast people this season. Uh, yes, I was 20th in that. So, um, yeah, shout out to Ibaruto, who was the, uh, the champion. Um, I was 20th and most importantly, a certain Steve English was, I think, 27. So that was the... <laughs> that was the in fact, Steve was 23rd, sorry, 23rd. So I beat him by three places, which is uh, what it was all about. So that, that that is a smile that will not be wiped off my face anytime soon. Your teammate is the first rider to beat, right? Exactly. Exactly. I have no idea where I finished. I won't even ask you about your positions, boys. No, not at all. Dave, do you know? Well, I was, uh, I mean, there was a two in my number as well. It started with a two. It's just that it had three, uh, uh, three, three digits instead of two. So, uh, yeah, I was, I mean, like I was, I was just pleased. I think I was in the, uh, in the top half. So, you know, that's, uh, that's good going. Well, listen, that's it for this week's show. Uh, thank you to Dorna for finishing a very frantic end of the season. Um, great job. Great world championship. Uh, also to the FIM for putting up a very, um, 
Swish Awards do. That was uh, great to be at that one. Enjoyed it you're, very much. You're just saying that because you got a free dinner and booze. Uh, absolutely, and a free plane ticket. But it was a, was a fine event and uh, very good to see all those world champions in one place at the same time. A great diversity of ages, experience, nationalities. Uh, I could heartily recommend it. It's not as uh, kind of stuffy as you'd think something like that would necessarily be. So uh, if invited again, I'd certainly go. Uh, we'll try and do maybe a podcast of some question and answers. I, I think one of those could be coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, as I mentioned, we do have content on the slate as well. So keep following the show. Uh, just because the racing is not happening, we are still are generating material. So the Paddock Pass podcast will be going through the winter. Thanks again to Rental for their backing this year. Just all that support really makes this thing possible. Uh, it has to be said. Uh, Dave, thanks very much. Neil, you also. Uh, until next week, guys, thank you for listening.